In front of each of us right now is something of a ditch. A ditch, yes, a, a ditch. A ditch called fear. It's in front of us right now. And if we give in to the fact that there is a ditch in front of us, we will be immobilized. We would not move. If we give in to this ditch of fear, we won't cross it. We won't overcome it. We will stay where we are. In fact, if we give ourselves into fear, we'll not even get out of our beds in the morning or afternoon or even evening. We would not do it because there are things to be feared. We would not leave the house. We would not go for a walk. There are so many things to be fearful about. We would not drive the car. We just look at the t statistics. People have car crashes and die. And there are so many things to be fearful about. And fear is a ditch. I use that as an example, as an illustration, because we overcome it every day. We overcome fear every day. Every time we get into a car, every time we get on a bus, every time we get in on a plane, uh, anything we do, really, we overcome the fear. Fear is a present reality. Fear is a mindset. But overcoming fear is also a mindset. And there is real fear in the area of evangelism. There are things to be fearful about. But just as in life we overcome the ditch, we walk over the ditch, we jump over the ditch, we are called to overcome and leap the ditch of fear. And the right motivation is not, I'm going to look good, uh, this is good for me. No, the right motivation always is love. And the Bible says perfect love casts out fear. Isn't that interesting? Seeing evangelism as a ditch then allows us to say, well, because evangelism can be a, a fearful thing, rather than being immobilized, I want to overcome my fears and reach out to people. And we do so with the motivation of love. Uh, uh, turn in your Bibles, please, to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, where Paul talks about uh, or writes about his encounter with the Corinthians. He's writing to them after he had been with them. And he writes this, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. In other words, I'm sure he could. He could have done that. He was more than educated, highly educated. He could bamboozle everyone by his knowledge, by his words. He could use words that would not be understood except by the elite in society. But he made a decision. I'm not going to do that. I'm not called to bamboozle people and impress people with my knowledge. Even though I might be fearful, the reason I'm going to overcome the ditch of fear is not so that I will look good, but that Christ will be honored. And because I love people, I will show them Christ. I will preach Christ. I will preach the cross of Christ. 
Again, verse 1, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come with anything other than the right motivation. When I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. The Greeks had a way of teaching uh, in society that was very elitist, and he renounced that. He did not give in to that, even though it might have been a temptation. Look at verse 2. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul made a decision. I'm not going to do this. I'm going to do that. I'm not going to try to impress you with lofty speech or wisdom. That's not my uh, modus operandi. That's not my agenda. My agenda, I've decided, is Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's what I'm going to preach. I'm going to preach him and what he has accomplished on the cross. I decided to know nothing among you, in fact, except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Does that mean he only preached Jesus Christ and the cross? I don't believe that's the case in the sense of that was his only subject. If he had 400 sermons in Corinth over time, every one was on the same subject. No, but in every subject, he went right to Jesus Christ and he went right to the cross. The cross of Christ was the hub of the wheel and there were many spokes. He spoke about a lot of things. In fact, in 1 Corinthians, he will address a number of different topics for sure. But central in all of it is Jesus Christ and him crucified. Look at verse 3. Paul writes, And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. We remember, don't we, Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God. Paul preached the gospel. And there was a demonstration of the Spirit's power as he did so. And the basis for that is that the people's faith would not rest in the wisdom of men. If Paul had spoken with an elitist attitude and elitist rhetoric, the words he used, then people would think, I have to do the same if I'm going to be used of God. But no, he preached Jesus Christ and him crucified plainly. He put him in full view so that the people's faith would not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Oh, Paul preached the gospel, and the gospel's the power of God. And if I preach the gospel, oh, I'll have the power of God too. Yes. You see, the gospel does not lead us into the power of God. The gospel is the power of God. What is the gospel? At the very heart of it, it's the person of Jesus Christ and his work. Jesus Christ and him crucified. The work of Christ on the cross. So fear is a very real reality. And Paul writes, 
I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. If you ever feel, feel fearful of sharing the gospel, you're in good company. Paul was gripped with fear. Really? Yeah, gripped with it. Weakness, fear, much trembling. Imagine Paul before a, a service or walking into town and he knows he's going to preach on Mars Hill, as he did in the book of Acts. Anywhere he went, moments before, he's trembling. What, what, what's wrong with that guy over there? Well, it's Paul. That, that's Paul? You're kidding me. He looks weak. Well, that's because he is weak. He, he looks fearful. Yeah, that's because he is fearful. He looks like he's trembling. That's right. That's the Apostle, Apostle Paul. Paul was gripped with all of that. But here's the point. But he did what he had to do anyway. He did it anyway. You see, when we talk about courage, unless fear is also present, there's no need for courage. The person who doesn't think it's a possibility of dying and they're not fearful of dying, who jumps off a diving board that's 40 feet up in the air, the guy is not fearful of that. He doesn't need any courage. No, but the person who's on a six-foot diving board who's very, very fearful, who overcomes that fear and jumps anyway or dives anyway, that takes courage. Courage is the victory over fear. If there is no fear, there's no courage. Be strong and courageous, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Praise the Lord. Joshua chapter 1. The ditch of fear. Love should be the motivation to cross the ditch, to jump the ditch. Love. In fact, it's in this same book, 1 Corinthians, that we read in chapter 13, the great love chapter. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I gave away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. Later on, so now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. Love's to be the motivation that will cause us to arise and cross the ditch of fear. I was interested to learn recently, it's come something of a surprise, that Ray Comfort, someone I admire for his uh, evangelistic uh, heart and outreach, he's always fearful. Always. Even now. 
decades on. You'd think evangelism would become easier with time. No. I remember uh, talking to a preacher, and I can relate to it myself. Uh, he, He had said that he was fearful before he preached, and he was asked, are you any better now? You were in your early days of ministry. You talked about having butterflies in your stomach. Is that still the case? And his humorous reply was, uh, I used to have butterflies. Now they just fly in formation. <laughs> it doesn't get easier. But that doesn't mean we quit. That doesn't mean we stop. It means we look to the Lord for courage. Go, go with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. Paul is outlining aspects of the ministry of Jesus after his resurrection, the ascended Christ, what he is doing and what he's doing now in his present day ministry. Uh, we, we read of this in verse 7. Ephesians 4 verse 7, but grace was given to each one according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when, when he ascended on high, talking of Christ, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean he ascended? What does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth, he who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. So this is outlining Jesus. He's giving gifts to men. And he gave, verse 11, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers. Let me just stop there for a moment. Jesus, in fact, is the ultimate in all of these offices. He's the ultimate apostle, the ultimate prophet. He is a prophet and more than a prophet, but he is a prophet. He's the ultimate evangelist. He's the ultimate shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. He's the ultimate teacher. And he gives gifts which are not merely talents but people do you notice that he gave gifts to men and the gifts are apostles prophets evangelists shepherds teachers he gave the apostles the prophets the evangelists the shepherds and teachers it's it's that last one there's a little bit of a controversy i guess as to whether there's four or five offices mentioned in that this last one Shepherds and teachers could be one office. Shepherds who teach. The teaching office of the shepherd. But whether we see this as five, uh, fivefold ministry in view here, uh, one apostles, two prophets, three evangelists, four shepherds, five teachers, or one apostles, two prophets, three evangelists, four shepherds and teachers. Whichever way we look at that, Jesus gives those gifts to the church and has done throughout church history. The the apostolic ministry is no longer in function as it was in the early church. 
They fulfilled the purpose of God. Ephesians 2 tells us about uh, the foundation being apostles and prophets. And a foundation in a house is only laid once. You don't uh, lay it on the uh, on the ground floor and then on the second floor and the eighth floor. Uh, what's that on the roof? Oh, I'm, I'm putting another foundation in. Well, on the roof? No. The foundation's only laid once. And uh, the household of God is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. That's Ephesians 2 verse 20 and we're growing into a holy temple in the Lord that's verse 21 but back to the plot here of Ephesians chapter 4 these ministry gifts of apostles prophets evangelists shepherds teachers have a function they're not there simply to be admired here's what they're called to do to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, and so it goes on. Well, let's read, so it goes on. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. So, so these gifts, these ministry gifts, have a function to bring the body of Christ to maturity. But notice the first uh, mention, the first thing mentioned, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. That's a very good translation. I remember reading the King James Version, and I have a problem with the... King James Version at this point on this verse because they insert, uh, the translators inserted a comma where there was no need of a comma. And it affects it. It affects the meaning very, very well. Uh, this comma matters because in the King James Version it reads like this, to equip the saints, comma, for the work of the ministry, comma, for the building up of the body of Christ. And with the comma, it looks like the ministry gifts are given to equip the saints, comma, and for the work of the ministry, comma, with the idea being they do all the ministry. Yeah, they equip the saints, they do the work of the ministry, they build up the body of Christ, but really that comma is not legitimate and the newer translations make it very, very clear these gifts, these ministry gifts are given to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Uh, I, I believe that's the case. You see, the ministry gifts in the church equips the saints to do the work of the ministry. In other words, these ministry gifts don't do all the ministry, but equips the saints to do the work of the ministry. So the pastor and the teacher is shepherding so that ministry takes place. Evangelists, biblically, should cause other evangelists to emerge. Go with me to, to 2 Timothy chapter 4. Again, familiar words. All of these uh, verses are familiar to us. 
But like a tour guide, I want to just stop and say, hey, as we're reading this, did you notice this? Did you notice that? Just as a good tour guide would do. 2 Timothy chapter 4. At the end of the previous chapter, the Apostle Paul had written to Timothy and had encouraged him that though he was going off the scene, which was the case, uh, verse 7 of chapter 4 would make it very, very clear. Verse 6, I'm already realizing my departure. The time of my departure has come. He's off the scene in not too long a time. But he's leaving Timothy with all that he needs in the word of God. It equips the man of God, Scripture does, for every good work. That's 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All Scripture is God-breathed, breathed out by God, theonoustos, God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Anything you need in ministry, the Word of God equips you. Anything, every good work. And then chapter 4, verse 1, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead. What, a, what solemnity, uh, really. And by his appearing and his kingdom, here's the charge, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. That means in good times and hard times. Kairos and a kairos in Greek. Good times, hard times. Think about uh, strawberries. They're either in season or out of season. <laughs> there's never a time when there's this fuzzy period. They're either in season or out of season. And that's the message here. In good times, hard times, no matter what the time, preach the word. Be ready to do so and do it when people like the message and when they don't. In season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke and exhort with complete patience and teaching for the time is coming when people will not endure. They'll not put up with sound teaching but having itching ears they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn, us, turn aside, turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering. Look at this next phrase. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. For I'm already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. I've fought the good fight, finished the race, kept the faith. Do you see what he's doing? He says, I'm about to leave and you stay at your post, Timothy. Preach the word. Oh, and um, do the work of an evangelist. Now, now think about this. Timothy, by uh, the traditions of the church and what we can ascertain from the scripture, Timothy was pastor of the church in Ephesus. That's a high calling and it's a strenuous calling. And any pastor who is uh, worth his salt, as the phrase goes, works much more than 40 hours a week. It's, it's a hard task if you're doing it right. If you're studying and if you're praying, even that is, 
time-consuming to the max, but there's a thousand other things it seems to do to do, many distractions that would keep you from your task, but your task is hard enough. Timothy was a pastor. Oh, but um, Timothy, do the work of an evangelist. You're kidding, right? Think about it in, in other terms. Think of a train driver. He, he's driving trains. He's doing that a lot. He's consumed. His time is consumed with train driving. You don't just set the train up and give it a push and that's it. No, you're on the train. If the train is leaving Phoenix and going to Chicago and you're a train driver, guess what? You're going to Chicago. You are the train driver and you stay with the train. But think of a train driver and then saying, oh, but while you're doing your train driver, also do the work of a gardener. What? No, train driving's enough. <laughs> but while you're doing train driving, do the work of a gardener. I'm, I'm out of here. That, that's the message of Paul to Timothy. I'm out of here. Do the train driving, do the work of a gardener. The time of my departure has come. Well, think of it. Timothy, you're a pastor. Give yourself to pastoring. Preach the word in season, out of season. Oh, but also do the work of an evangelist. I, I want to go, huh? Um, how's that possible? Here's how it's possible. It's a mindset. As you preach, as you teach, do the work of an evangelist. Have an evangelist heart. It should be true about the pastor that you have to ask, is he a pastor or an evangelist? <laughs> you know, there are pastors who only preach evangelistic sermons and you think they need to adjust because they are called upon to feed the sheep as well. But I believe every sermon should have an evangelistic mindset whereby somewhere in there is the gospel. Why? As you pastor, as you preach, do the work of an evangelist. There are lost people who will hear you. And it may be true that they need to love one another and stop the gossip and the slander and everything else that you read in the epistles that Paul writes, but center stage is Christ and the cross. Center stage is the gospel. And so it should be true to say, uh, that, that, that pastor over there, is he really a pastor or an evangelist? And the answer should be yes. <laughs> He's a pastor, he loves the sheep, he's with the sheep, he feeds the sheep, he nourishes the sheep, he protects the sheep, he guards against wolves, that's what a shepherd does. But he also is an evangelist. He shepherds the flock with an evangelistic mindset. Just, just speaking personally, I, I've been challenged by the scriptures as I've looked at this and uh, it's been a stretching time the last couple of years and in one area particularly, I'm doing what I've not done before and that's street evangelism. I always thought that is something I will never do. Why? Fear. <laughs> There's this big ditch of fear and uh, 
street evangelism, you take your life into your hands. I, I know of people that react when they've seen me do some street evangelism. They say, well, I once went on the street and I did some music and I thought, that's right, that's wonderful, absolutely wonderful. But you're not normally going to be killed for doing music, even gospel music in the street. But you could be as a street evangelist, you get up on a little box and start preaching God's truth in that hostile environment, you take your life in your hands and it's a fearful thing. But here's the thing, the, the pastor, the shepherd should do the work of an evangelist. And that's, that's I, I think of that and I think, John, obey that and you're obeying God. You're obeying Christ. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. Paul didn't say to Timothy, you're, 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 a, you're a pastor, you're not called to be an evangelist. No, you're a pastor and do the work of an evangelist. So I've been stretched, and uh, one of the things that I did was in using a friend's uh, speaker system downtown, I went on a walk to find out how far the sound carried. And when I got to the edge of where I could hear someone on the speaker system, I made a mental note where I was, and then I got my watch and timed how long it would take for me to walk past the speaker system. In other words, I found out the length of time whereby someone walking towards me when I'm using the system would hear me. And the answer, the range, was about 45 seconds. So. There's 45 seconds of time whereby people are hearing me as they're walking towards me. Once they're past the speaker, they don't hear me. Once they've walked past me, they don't hear me. And I realized I've got 45 seconds to communicate with people walking by me downtown. Why? It's not a sermon. I'm not there to give three points and then the fourth and then say, now, back to the first point, why are you doing that? They're only, they've only heard the last 40 seconds. Why are you going into point three, four, five? No, it's not a sermon. You've got 45 seconds to preach law and gospel, the law which condemns us, which shows us our sin, and the gospel, the gospel of Christ, how he's the remedy for sin. And in that environment, it's okay if there's repetition, in that environment, it's okay if there's repetition. <laughs> Why? Because they hadn't heard what you said a minute and a half ago. So you can use the same scripture, I guess, over and over. I try not to do that, but uh, that's because there are people around who are listening to the 20 minutes I'm up on the box, or however long I'm up there. Um, but I have the idea in that environment, that's what an evangelist would do. He would work out how long people can hear him and make sure everyone that hears him has the law and has heard the gospel. So when thousands have walked by, he's not saying, well, 18 probably heard the gospel when for a few moments I got to the cross, uh, but then I was developing point three, four, five, six, and seven of my sermon. No, in that environment, you want everyone to hear the gospel. And that's a mindset. You see, I want everyone who walks by to hear the wonderful gospel of Christ. Praise the Lord. Um, 
as, as we think about this, I want to recommend something if you haven't already viewed it. It's must-see viewing. I don't say that about an, a whole lot of things. But if you were to Google uh, YouTube, Living Waters, an atheist conversion, it's a four-minute video. YouTube, Living Waters, an atheist conversion. You'll see ra- uh, a, a video put out by Living Waters, a four-minute video of a testimony of someone who was converted through the use of a tract. It is so encouraging. I would really uh, would ask you, if you haven't already seen that, to pause for a moment, pause this recording, and, and just do that. YouTube, Living Waters, and Atheist Conversion. It's a four-minute video will come up. Just, just watch that. It'll encourage you greatly. And you'll see that God can use you. Well, I can hand a tract out. Yeah, you can, especially a a good million-dollar track where you hand it to someone and there's a smile between the two of you and you walk off and it's only later they realize what they got when they read the back. <laughs> That's a good way to overcome fear is, is you're not having to really deal with it. Now, uh, that's not always the case. They may follow you and they may say, hey, what have you done here? But hey, it's, it's, a, it's a great thing to hand out tracks. Um, I want to say some things about that. Firstly, let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. There we read familiar words again. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 verse 6. Paul writes this, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. Now the context here is Paul saying there are factions in the church. There are some that say I follow Paul, I follow Apollos. I follow uh, Christ, but these are not in opposition with each other. Uh, I planted, I had a planting ministry, Apollos had a watering ministry, but God gave the growth. We're on the same team, that's the context here. Some plant, some water, but God gave the increase. You may be, as you're uh, witnessing and sharing the gospel, planting. You may be the first person to ever share the gospel with someone. You might be the seventh. And you're watering the seed that was first planted years before. But when, come, when God converts the soul, it's God who did the work. God gave the increase. That's a real true understanding of what's in view there. We may be the first to share the, the, the good news of the gospel, We might be watering the seed that has been planted by others. But when someone comes to Christ, it's God who gives the increase. Salvation is of the Lord. Conversion is the work of God in the human soul. I'd like us to go to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19. 
Well, we have a very amazing incident here. You remember the young man, the rich young man had gone away sad. Uh, it's interesting as we read verse 16, behold, a man came up to him saying, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he, that's Jesus, said to him, why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. And he said to him, which ones? And he said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness. Jesus led the man through the commandments of God to ascertain whether in fact the man was good. Honor your father and mother and you shall love your neighbor as yourself, Jesus went on. So Jesus was using the Ten Commandments, very, very much so. And the young man said to him, all these I have kept, what do I still lack? Well, Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Now, this is a wonderful passage. I don't have the time just now to really uh, go into the depths of all we've just read. I just want to get to a point here. Verse 22, when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. He was rich. This was the rich young man. You could equally say great possessions had him. Here's Jesus' reaction. Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. He's basically saying, it ain't going to happen. Camels don't go through the eye of a needle. Eye of a needle so small, camels very, very big, not going to happen. In the same way, it's how hard it is for those who are rich to enter the kingdom of God. Verse 25, when the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, then who can be saved? Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible. Yeah, the camels don't go through eyes of a needle. Uh, rich people don't enter the kingdom of God. They trust in their resources. They trust in their abilities. They trust in themselves. There's no way they're going to go through that little door of salvation. No way. With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. That's true in any conversion. Who can be saved? Who can be saved? Do you know with man it's impossible? But with God, all things are possible. Conversion is impossible, but God. That's the point. That's the point. As we understand that, we realize when we share the gospel, we are successful. I once wrote these words, and I'll say them again now. Here are two twin truths we should grasp. God alone 
opens human hearts to his word and God's word will accomplish all his holy will. Sovereign election is not a discouragement to our evangelism efforts, but properly understood, provides the necessary fuel for them. God has chosen a people to save and all of them will come to Christ. This knowledge makes us bold in evangelism. God uses means to achieve his ends, prayer and the proclamation of the gospel, Romans 10, 14 through 17. When a gospel tract is placed in the hand, whether it is then kept or discarded, it has been a successful evangelism encounter. End of quote. I really believe that. Mark Dever wrote this, when you understand that evangelism isn't converting people, but that it is telling them the wonderful truth about God, the great news about Jesus Christ, then obedience to the call to evangelize can become certain and joyful. Understanding this increases evangelism as it moves away from being a guilt-driven burden to being a joyful privilege, end of quote. I love that. That's so true. This should not be a guilt-driven burden, but a joyful privilege. We can be involved in the, the, the conversion of the soul by God using us as means. Some quotes as we begin to wrap this up. Ray Comfort said this, don't pray for less fear to reach the last Pray for more love. In the light of the ditch of fear, isn't that helpful? Don't pray for less fear to reach the lost. Pray for more love. C.H. Spurgeon said this, Every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. That's strong. I didn't say it, Spurgeon said it. <laughs> Ray Comfort again. If you're not concerned about your neighbor's salvation, then I'm concerned for yours. Isn't that true? If you understand what God has done to save you and you really understand, I've been saved from the perilous condition of going to hell. I want others to come with me on a journey to heaven. If you're not concerned about your neighbor's salvation, I'm concerned for yours. Again, to quote Spurgeon, when preaching and private talk are not available, have a tract ready. A telling, touching gospel tract may often be the seed of eternal life. Do not go out without your tracts. I make it a plan to always have at least one gospel tract in my wallet and certainly in my car and about me, I, 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 it should be a mindset. All that the Father gives me will come to me. John chapter 6, verse 37, Jesus said. Spurgeon said this, If sinners will be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. And if they will perish, let them perish with our, with our arms about their knees imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, at least let it be filled with the teeth of our exertions and let no one go there unwarned and unprayed for. Let no one go there unwarned 
and unprayed for. Now, as we wrap this up, let me encourage you that we're successful whenever we share the gospel. That's a success, and then it's in the hands of the Lord. It's God who brings the increase. It's not our great skill that converts the soul. It's God who takes out hearts of stone and puts in hearts of flesh. But let me encourage you with a testimony of Rick Phillips. He's a pastor and an author. I've uh, sat under his ministry at a R.C. Sproul Pastors Conference. Tremendous guy. And here's his testimony. He he wrote it in uh, a book he wrote called Jesus the Evangelist. Here are his words, and I'll close with this. One person who might think poorly of her witness is a woman whose words were instrumental in my own salvation. I do not know her name and doubt I could recognize her. One day, as I moved into an apartment, she was moving out next door. I carried one box of books to her car. After thanking me, she asked whether I was looking for a church to attend. My body language made it clear that I did not appreciate the question. So she quickly stammered, If you are ever looking for a church, I would recommend this particular church a few blocks away. With that, she drove off, and I never saw her again. I've often imagined her kicking herself for her weak attempt to witness. But a few months later, when the Holy Spirit had prepared a way for the Lord into my heart, I remembered her words, went to that church, and hearing the gospel there, I believed and was saved. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the Lord Jesus. We thank you for the ministry of evangelism. And though fear is often and even always with us, motivated by love, let us overcome the ditch of fear. Perfect love casts out fear. May we be used of the Lord to reach others. May we have that mindset recognizing that when we say anything of the gospel, it's God who opens human hearts. Just as in Acts 16, the Lord opened Lydia's heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Father, we thank you for the ability even now on planet Earth while we're alive to share your truth either through the words we say or through gospel tracts or through gospel included books, books with the gospel inside, sermons online we can send people to. Lord, we have so many resources, but Lord, use us. Use us. And for us as pastors, may we always do the work of an evangelist. And may we as Christians, as we go into all the world, preach the gospel. The preaching of the gospel is not living a certain way. That's a result of the gospel. That's the beauty of what the gospel does. But the gospel itself is good news. News that needs to be heard. News that needs to be shared. Lord, we ask these things that you might be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen.